Welcome to Tez Podagogy. Mental health in schools almost always gets discussed in relation to the secondary phase and teenagers, but how prevalent are challenges in primary and even EYFS? To explore this, I'm joined in this episode by Dr Wendy Sims-Skelton, Associate Professor in Childhood Studies at the University of Portsmouth and Head of the Mental Health in Childhood and Education Research Group. Hello, Wendy. Hello. So, why do you think we always associate mental health challenges or issues with with teenagers? Why does our mind automatically go to... uh, Why do we picture a teenager when we think about mental health issues in schools? When it comes to mental health issues and mental health problems, um, we know that when children or young people are diagnosed, it's more likely to happen when they're teenagers, especially at roughly age 14. That's not to say that there are no signs of mental health issues and problems earlier on in life, but the sort of roughly, generally, when you think about mental health issues, eating disorders, um, depression, are most likely to be diagnosed from age 14. Is there a, a biological <coughs> reason for that? Is it because we are looking harder for those issues in the teenage years? I mean, you know, anecdotally, it seems that the pastoral attention at primary is, is more so than at secondary, so you'd expect to see them more at primary, any, any, any problems, but we have this shift where actually at secondary they're being picked up more, perhaps. I think traditionally we're trying to be very careful when it comes to diagnosing younger children mm-hmm. also because of course there are the, develop- the different developmental pathways and milestones so children are developing that's not to say that the child from 14 onwards is not developing but is more likely to see specific signs of specific mental health issues at age 14 onwards however there will be early signs children suffering from you know issues around mental health and well-being there will be early signs at primary school and even uh, earlier on when children are in early years so it is important to be aware of this mm-hmm. but it's also important to be aware of the fact that children are developing so we need to be very careful uh, how we take this forward and how we approach mental health and well-being in childhood does that mean that sometimes we can see a problem at any age that that might be a mental health issue but actually is is part of a different is part of a developmental trajectory so that is it is it quite is there a sort of a tipping point where this quite a cloudy, a grey area, which 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 section that would fall into. Yes, and, and, and to an extent that's tricky as well. So, for example, there are the signs and symptoms of potential mental health issues. And if we get involved early on through early intervention and prevention, we can make sure that certain problems, issues in childhood, uh, don't turn into you know diagnosable mental health issues. So from that perspective, of course, it's very important to get involved early on in life and to be aware of, of early signs and symptoms of, of children suffering and not doing very well with uh, issues around uh, mood changes, uh, behavioural issues, uh, for example, certain kind of fears, uh, anxiety, all of those are the early symptoms of what could be a mental health issue. But again, we need to acknowledge as well that children are developing and we need to look at the pattern. So in order to, be, to sort of make sense of mental health and well-being early on in life, uh, everybody has an off day occasionally. Mm. You know, you're going to school, you're, you just don't feel great. But it is that particular child who seems to have an off day for for a long period of time or whose behaviour has changed or who seems to all of a sudden have these certain kind of fears and and is not able to engage well with their peer group or the child who's being bullied because bullying, of course, is a big factor here as well. Do you you get better at articulating these problems as an individual as you get older? Is Is a... 14 year old better articulating how they're feeling and perhaps 
the problems that are or are occurring than a seven-year-old or actually are a lot of the symptoms out of our control and our, and our behavioural rather than having to articulate them? I think it's, it's yes, an older child would be in, in a better position to articulate and explain I'm not feeling great. Mm. Whereas when you're looking at a younger child uh, who might be talking about stomach ache, uh, not feeling very well, and that could in and of itself be a sign and symptom of, of a mental health issue or, or an underlying well-being issue. So there are issues around being able to verbalise it. But there are, of course, ways around this as well. There are now a lot of books that schools can use. I think the uh, Royal uh, Society for Psychiatric uh, the Royal College of Psychi- uh, Psychiatry have produced some really interesting books that are specifically geared towards primary school age children so that teachers can use to open up discussions around um, emotions and well-being. And what is especially powerful with children is stories around metaphors. Okay. So rather than talking to a child about how are you feeling, what is going on, because that's too direct, you could present a child with a story of a snail who is not feeling great and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that might be a story around self-esteem, well-being, or another story about a little train who's being bullied and doesn't know what to do. Because a lot of the time it's, it's sort of a sense of being powerless as well. Mm. Are they, um, is that essentially giving them the, 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 the tools to understand themselves? Are, are they, does, does a young person of that sort of age group understand that they are anxious or understand that the tummy ache might be down to anxiety for example or do, and then they don't can't articulate it or do they not even know understand their own feelings at that age they obviously don't feel great within themselves if if there are underlying mental health and well-being issues but indeed they may not be able to articulate which is why we sometimes see children who have behavioral issues mm-hmm. and sometimes there is a tendency to punish the behavior but really you need to look at what, what causes the, the behaviour. So it's very important for adults around the child to step back, step back and look at the child and, and sort of talk to the child. So there is this sort of notion of uh, social buffering. Social buffering is when you have chats and, and conversations with the child to talk about what's going on. How are you today? And not too direct, not saying, do you feel good? Do you, how is your self-esteem? Of course, we have to be very careful what language we use. But it is about opening up discussions and, and providing tools for children to, to deal with things. Because when it comes to issues around mental health and well-being, we know, for example, that 15% of uh, children aged four who have um, a parent with a mental health issue develop a mental health issue themselves. In other words, there is a direct link between home situation, mental health issues of parents and development of issues, problems at age four, as young as age four. That seems really, really young to be able to... like. I mean, what sort of behaviours might they be exhibiting at that age? I mean, how do, they, how do you gauge between a normal four-year-old behaviour pattern of quite erratic emotionally? The four-year-old, I've got yeah. a four-year-old of my own. <laughs> and uh, and yep. I had one before, uh, my older child went through that stage and, and they can be quite, you know, not scary, but sometimes, you know, a tantrum can be, whoa, where, where did yeah. that come from? And, and then saying, okay, that's, that's, that's typical, if you'd like to call that, you know, we could call it a typical four-year-old behaviour. And what might a atypical four-year-old be doing? I think it's the extremes. So again, if, if a child is occasionally a bit off and, and, and throws a temper and, and, and isn't happy, that's part of, of, of growing up. Mm. But if it's consistent, if day in, day out, the child comes in and it's n- the child is not functioning, there might be behavioral issues, 
the child might be withdrawn or not able to play with uh, peers or not feel feeling like they're in a position to 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 do their work they can't concentrate so their academic work might suffer mm -hmm. so it's also about a pattern that's quite abnormal for that particular child so in that case we also need to look at the individual child because of course there are differences between child, children. Every child is unique, every child is an individual. Mm. So it's also important to get to know the child. How do, does the child behave normally and what is different? And mm. if nothing is different, you know, and maybe some children are more outgoing than others. But, and it's also action-reaction. So it's not just home situation, of course, that causes issues or can potentially cause issues. There are also issues around bullying. And I think we tend to forget, because when we look at mental health and well-being, we tend to look at home and what's going on there. But there is also quite a lot of evidence that bullying can cause quite a lot of problems for mental health and well-being. And long-lasting problems, so children who are bullied as young as age three or four, and then go through primary school being bullied, will have mental potentially have mental health issues by the time you know, they're 11, 12. But you will also see signs and symptoms when they're at primary school. Mm. And today. In, in terms of the home environment, how much of a behaviour can be learnt behaviour because that's that's typical of what's for home and how much might be a, a, a mental health issue in the sense of if a child is exhibiting sort of violent behaviour, for example, yeah. do we is there a way of finding out whether that is linked to a, a deep anxiety or, or another mental health issue or it's just a learnt behaviour from older siblings or, or parents, violence, violence in the home essentially. I mean, that distinction is quite, must be quite tough. I think the, the whole school approach is very important. You know, the whole school approach is what's being adopted in different schools. And effectively what it means is that head teachers, uh, teachers, governors, parents, anybody who is who is around the child, who's part of the child's life, work together to, to create an environment that's supportive. Mm. And this also involves communicating with parents, observations, and, and having, having an open approach. And, and I have an interesting example that um, I came across some years ago. So I was teaching on um, one of our courses in early childhood. Mm. And one of our students was a practitioner who worked in early years. And she told me a very interesting story. She had a five-year-old in, in her class who was quite aggressive. He used to hit kids, other kids. Okay. And, and it was getting out of control. And she was worried about it. So she organized to meet with the mother. So she had a chat with the mother and she said, um, your son is quite aggressive and is hitting other kids. And mum walked straight up to the child and smacked him. Oh, okay. So that's sort of a sense that sometimes, yes, indeed, it could be learned behaviour. But it is about sort of getting to know the child, uh, their home situation, but also what is happening at school. Because sometimes you see children who are behaving very differently at school compared to at home. I used to know this girl who was apparently out of control in school. Teachers mm. couldn't control her, they kept punishing her. But at home, there was nothing, nothing going on. In other words, she was functioning very well at home, good relationship with the siblings, parents were fine. So then you could ask yourself, do we need to look at the school situation? And maybe there is a tendency to, to sanction or punish certain behaviours, and we need to look at what causes the behaviour, rather than saying, you're a bad person, we need to make sure that you behave properly. Mm. So, yeah. When there is a learned behaviour, like, like the example you gave of the mum hitting the child, does that not negate the fact that there might be a, also a mental health problem because of that? If you're in a violent home, could you, also, could you not only be learning the violent behaviour but also develop a mental health issue because of that violent behaviour and there is potentially a mental health issue within the, within the parents or the family as well because of that? Yeah, and that's a really tricky one. I mean, if you look at uh, mental health issues or mental health problems that are most commonly diagnosed in younger children, mm. it would either be conduct disorder, 
or anxiety disorder. What's a conduct disorder? So conduct disorder is a, si is, is a child who is showing quite extreme violent behaviour okay. to the point that they're harming animals, uh, they're being destructive. Okay. And if you look at the evidence uh, of what could potentially cause conduct disorder, it seems to be a mix of nature and nurture. Okay. And, and that's always a tricky thing with mental health issues. It, we know, of course, that there is a big nurture or environmental element, what's happening at home, what's happening in your life, what's happening at school, but there is also a biological element. So it is about, and, and when a child is showing that kind of behaviour where things are getting out of control, really what you need to do is, is, is uh, obviously get in, uh, CAMS, Child and Adolescent, Adolescent Mental Health Service involved. Uh, there will be a pastoral worker in school or, or somebody who could sort of, you know, refer the child or at least, uh, you know, work the child with the child in the initial stages. Mm. But uh, educational psychologists need to be involved as well. So again, that's also part of the whole school approach is knowing when you need to refer a child for, for extra support and help. Is so the two main ones you mentioned there, a conduct disorder and an anxiety disorder, are they the ones we most commonly see in the sort of two to two to ten years old bracket? Um, yeah, I mean, and again, it is really tricky to put a label mm. on a child because a child is always developing. So mm. the fact that a child may have conduct disorder or whatever, you know, behavioural issues early on doesn't mean they can't grow out of it. So we have to be very careful we don't label the child. But uh, those seem to be the disorders that are most commonly diagnosed. The anxiety disorder could be a sign of underlying attachment issues mm -hmm. or attachment disorder, which could be associated with mental health problems in parents, uh, disorganized attachment at home, but it could also be linked to, to issues and problems at, problems, problems at school where the child is just simply worried to go to school because they're just not coping. Mm. The anxiety one's tricky, isn't it, I guess, because at what point does a natural stress, if you like, if you want to call it that, or a natural nervousness become an anxiety disorder? Like if, if I'm worried because I said something that, a little bit wrong to a friend and I'm worried about the repercussions, I guess you'd say it was persistent? Yes, and, yeah, and it's also again being aware of the early signs and symptoms and, and making sure that you support the child so it doesn't escalate. Mm. But it is those children who, who are not coping, they're crying and they have panic attacks and they simply can't be in the school environment because it's just too hard for them emotionally. Mm. And there might be physical symptoms as well, throwing up, all of that. So when we're, when we're t dealing with children in the 2 to 10 age group and we've discussed that they might not know what's going on themselves and, and they might not understand what's going on themselves and it's quite tricky to to uh, navigate these different different sort of causes if you like if you want to call them causes as a teacher how much how much sort of chance do you have to, to spot these things I mean how much training do teachers have and you know how skilled do you have to be to spot these sort of early signs of, of, of an issue well, I think there sort of are a number of changes which are mostly happening at the moment in secondary school, which is the mental health first aid approach, mm -hmm. where one teacher is, is or two in, in every big secondary school is being trained. And those things, of course, are needed in primary schools as well. So specific training when it comes to recognising early signs of uh, mental health problems or well-being issues or emotionally emotional issues as well. So teachers, of course, especially at primary school, are in a good place to, to, to get to know the child because they tend to deal with the same children for a whole year, mm -hmm. which is different to secondary school where you teach subjects. So you yes, quite fragmented. Yes. Yeah. So in primary school, of course, the teacher will get to know the child. And, and as such, it's important for them, number one, to step back 
when they see the child's behaviour and ask themselves what could be the symptoms, what could be the causes, what is going on with this child. Talk to the parents, but also um, talk to other teachers and be supportive. I mean, the, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Good Childhood Report, which is produced by the Children, uh, Children's Society every year. And the Good Childhood Report looks at subjective well-being. And subjective well-being is very much linked to, to what the child is feeling and how the child sees the world. And there is, again, a lot of evidence that subjective well-being, issues around bullying, uh, peer relationships, friendships, are all linked to it. Okay. And I know schools have a lot of things in place already, so they've, for children who are on their own in the playground, there are sometimes little areas where they can go so that people can see or other kids can see that they're on their own and they want to make a friend. You know, those sort of peer or buddy um, areas. Yeah. So those are really helpful. But, but it's also, what I think is very important when, when you work with children as a teacher, to step back but also reflect on, on your own emotions and feelings because sometimes when the child is consistently showing extreme behavior and, and is, 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 be, is challenging to other kids, it, it is almost tempting to, to punish the child, you know, time out uh, or shout at the child. And it's important to step back and, and think about what causes this behavior rather than punishing the behavior, looking at the child. So talking to the child, this social buffering, as I was talking about earlier, mm. is about showing empathy, talking to the child, doing group work, you know, with support from books, you know, about the little snail or the train who was being bullied. But it's also about teacher well-being mm. because we tend to ignore that one as well. I mean, teachers suffer from mental health and well-being issues as well. There's a lot of stress on them. So it's important for them to be aware of their own well-being when they're working with children. And their reactions to behavior because of their own mental well-being. The other thing we need to be aware of is uh, the fact, of course, as I said, children are unique, but children also come from un their own unique environments. So we have children, uh, different you know, parental situations, uh, children from different ethnic minority backgrounds. And again, we need to make sure that we cater for the different needs of different children. There is, for example, evidence that children from BAME communities, so black and Asian minority ethnic communities, mm. are less likely to be diagnosed. I mean, the official data suggests that they're less likely to have mental health issues compared to, to white uh, British children, for example. But you could also argue that this is because some of the signs and symptoms are simply not recognised mm. and not dealt with or not engaged with. So There's need no reason, is there, for that to be lower other than a lack of diagnosis there? Exactly. So we need to do far more to engage with ethnic minority communities, give them a voice. It's, it's something that I'm passionate about and I think it's incredibly important that we do, and do, do you, that. I mean, on that theme, I guess, I mean, are teachers looking at most vulnerable groups here? I mean, is, does it make any difference of your socio-economic background? We, we, we've noted just then that the ethnicity may be an issue in, in diagnosis, but in terms of occurrence, are, are there higher risk factors in terms of or socio-economic background, background? But I guess you talked about bullying and you talked about some other factors that are presumably neutral in terms of, of Yeah, factor. yeah, I mean, there are the neutral factors. Now, the World Health Organization refers to certain groups as vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. Now, vulnerable groups are not groups that are vulnerable because they are weaker than other groups, but it's groups who are more vulnerable because of the situation or the environment that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, of course, there are children who grow up in the care system who are more likely to be, you know, vulnerable to, for suffering from mental health issues. You've got the so-called ACE, you know, um, yeah. 
uh, adverse child experiences. And I think it's three or more of those, oh, of course, is, is quite sort of a significant factor in potential mental health issues. And it's also uh, children from ethnic minority backgrounds simply because of potential racism, discrimination that's not um, recognized as such. And that can have an enormous impact on children. If you're going to school and you are on the receiving end of racism, uh, racist bullying, that's incredibly strong. And, it's, and, and at the moment, I think we need to do far more to to deal with those issues and support children and today um, so, so if you had a child who was from a very comfortable middle-class background and you know as a teacher you might think oh, I don't have to worry much about that child actually that child's just as just as likely to have a mental health, a health issue indeed yeah and and I think again because of, of, of what we know and what we learn about children when children start school of course there's all the background information it is more tempting to think oh that child comes from a, a, a poorer background or is a child in care so we have to be careful but we also have to be careful with our own stigmas because there are children who are perfectly fine and they might grow up, up in poverty but they've got the most amazing and lovely parents and then you've got children who come from more wealthy families and they've got parents who don't really care about the child so you've got the child who, who, who might have low self-esteem or or has or has parents who are too permissive and just don't really care either way so again it is a, about the individual child and acknowledging the fact that you know children grow up in, in their own way and obviously environmental influences play a big role but we need to sort of make sure that every child uh, that we're aware of the needs of every single child yeah. Do we need to get away from the idea of mental health being caused by trauma then? Is, or just, you know, the, the, the association in a lot, of, a lot of people's perception is that our mental health issue comes out of trauma, therefore there are the high risk factors where trauma might occur and, you know, you, there's, the, there's this seemingly logical progression. But I think you mentioned before that I think only 15%, was it, that 15% uh, are, are genetic factors. In, well, 15% of children who have got mental health issues, uh, parents with mental health issues, will develop mental health mm. issues themselves. That may not be a genetic factor, though, because it could be environmental okay. as well. Because if, if you have a parent who's depressed, that could also be this, again, the learning element where you, you basically have this example in front of you and, and you basically it's it's sort of the the environmental factor and the, the nature so it's not just nature that goes, uh, that you know means that those children are more likely to have mental health issues i think we do need to be aware of issues around trauma also in relation to what happens next for example children who are taken into care they um go through trauma bereavement because you're taken away from your parents whether or not those parents are good or bad parents they will go through trauma when they end up in foster care or whatever that sort of trauma can result in behavioral issues then if you sort of separate the two and you look at the behavior of the child and you're like that's a badly behaved child we need to punish them then you're not doing that child justice at all in fact that child will need support with their bereavement and their trauma so we do need to acknowledge that trauma has quite an impact on children definitely yeah and then the other facts you know, I mean is, is the bullying example you gave is that a, is that a form of trauma uh, experiencing bullying I mean is that where the mental health issue from bullying occurs because it is a trauma like occurrence definitely yeah bullying i would definitely argue that bullying is is, is 
a form of trauma. Mm. And I think because we do the bullying talk all the time and there's lots of interventions, the people tend to think, well, we've, it's done, it's done. We've got all these interventions in place, so we know how to deal with bullying. And I've even heard teachers say, there's no bullying at that school. And it's simply not true. Mm. We know there is bullying. We know there is racist bullying, sexist bullying, which is more sort of something you will see in older children. But um, it, it is important to be aware of it because it has enormous impact on children that can last a lifetime. Yeah. Do you think the, the, the less prevalent diagnosis at an earlier age is not just down to perhaps uh, on the clinical side and people like yourself knowing that there's this developmental trajectory and sort of a, not just a wait and see in terms of do nothing but also just a, let's wait, let's try something, early interventions and see what happens. But do you think there's also a case that in our minds there's a teenager and it's this you know this surly teenager and you know they're likely to get it and and when you're under 10 these are innocent children you know they're untouched you know mm. untouched by the world if you like there's this there's this lack of it's not acceptance i guess acceptance is the wrong word but uh, perhaps are slightly less willing to believe that a child could could experience these quite extreme feelings at, at an early early age that the world could almost do that to a child yeah, to an extent, definitely. I would also argue that, of course, when it comes to a diagnosable mental health issue, we're talking about something quite extreme. Mm. So when it comes to teenagers, you're talking about, for example, somebody who has anorexia, uh, somebody who's self-harming. And in younger children, you're less likely to see that sort of extreme behavior. Mm. doesn't mean it's not there. You will see early signs. And of course, there are children who are diagnosed and are, as we speak, in institutions for children with mental health issues. And those kids could be primary school aged as well. But we're talking about quite extreme behaviors where um, there's, you know, extreme anxiety, um, it's erratic behavior, is where a child is simply not able to function anymore at school or at home and they're actually taken into residential care. Not as in a child in care, but a child who's in psychiatric care, so it does happen. So I would argue that when it comes to mental health issues, in teenagers it's, it's more extreme. Mm. And, and whereas in younger children the, you see the early signs and as soon as we, you know, we need to acknowledge those as well. So we need to be aware of this because, of course, early intervention prevention is absolutely key. If we can do something to support children during their primary school years, then we could possibly prevent stuff from escalating when they're a bit older. What would you say in, in a teacher's mind, so they, they, they start to notice a pattern of, of a change in behaviour, which is, is, is what you sort of stipulated was a sort of early sign of something going slightly wrong. Where's the balance in their mind between labeling a child as, as potentially having a mental health issue and getting them the help they need in terms of there's lots of teachers who will be reluctant to label a child through fear of uh, repercussions down the line upsetting parents for example um, you know creating low expectations for that child when it might not actually be a mental health issue in your sort of experience should a teacher always err on the side of let, let's just let's just let the professionals have a look Absolutely. I don't think a teacher should ever label a child or use any mental health language because it, it's not anything they're qu qualified to do. Mm -hmm. So all they can do is, is notice what the early signs are. And, and it might be better to refer to it as issues around well-being rather than mental health. Yeah. Because as soon as you say a child has a mental health issue, you're almost assuming that there is a proper d diagnosable disorder. And, and the teachers shouldn't really be in a position to do that. Mm. So once things escalate, a child needs to be referred to be diagnosed if that is needed. 
needed. But for mo in most cases, or in a lot of the cases, we're talking about early signs and symptoms. And the child may need somebody to talk to. They may need, uh, as I said, social buffering, where they've got somebody who listens to their story. Um, they may need, may need some individual support or whatever the school is able to provide. So it is about those early signs when you're thinking about well-being and making sure the child feels well within themselves and their self-esteem is good, they're able to function, they, they can make friends, um, and, and they are you know, doing all right in school. So that's, I think, the, the role of a teacher to make sure that those general things are okay. But once it's more serious, they need to, to get some support for the child, yeah. Um. When, when, when it does become more serious and, and then CAMS turn around and say we've got a six month waiting list for that child, is there anything really a, a, a teacher can do in that six month period to, to, to manage that child? I mean, is there a danger that in trying to manage it you make it worse because you don't fully know what, what you're doing in, in that sense? I mean, is there just no other choice but to wait for the, for the professional intervention? It's a really tricky one because it's, it's actually quite awful when you think about the fact that there is a waiting list and that the child who needs help is going to have to wait and the parents will have to wait. And really, I mean, if, if a teacher or somebody around the child feels, and it most likely is, is a GP, so if things escalate, parents might take the child to the doctor and, and the child might be referred. So again, I mean, teachers can... I mean, ideally, you would have somebody who's trained in mental health first aid, mm -hmm. but again, it's not a mental health work. It wouldn't be a psychiatric nurse or a um, psychologist, psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And so that would never be the role of a teacher. All teachers can do is support children, uh, look at the child as an individual, and don't sanction or punish bad behavior, but again, allows the child to talk and say things like, how are you, and, and, and how was your day yesterday, and try to be as supportive as possible. Mm -hmm. So would you, uh, in terms of if you're a teacher managing a class of 30, and, and I, I can't think of a school probably where sanctions aren't part of a behaviour policy, how do you acknowledge that child is behaving in a way that's possibly out of their control while maintaining the, the sanctions base for the other 29 children who may need that boundary, if, if that makes sense? I think it's it's about the balance of things. So, of course, it's about, um, again, whole school approach means that different parties are involved and are aware of what's going on with children and there are different policies in place and you work closely with parents. But it is also about how you use sanctions and how you use discipline. So, you you know, using timeouts or, or whatever is what schools can do or, or, you know, certain things that are being used to, to you know, support children or help them with their behaviour. But sometimes there is a tendency for a child who has quite extreme behaviour, who's running off, who's hitting other children, to, to shout and say, no, don't do that. And those are things that should never happen. And of course, as you're saying, if, you are, if you're in a classroom and there's 30 kids, and I hope there are classrooms that are a bit smaller than that at primary school, but yeah. then, of course, it, it's tempting to, to, to be like, stop it, don't run away. And, and yet, it, it is about, again, stepping back and thinking, OK, this may not be the best way to deal with, the, with that particular child. You may actually get more of a result if you talk to the child individually and make sure you, you, know, you check what's going on. And again, I appreciate if there's 30 kids, then that's going to be quite tricky. So one would hope that there is other support. As I said, the whole school approach, I, I would hope there is a um, teaching assistant, pastoral care, mm. and other people who can support the child here as well. And can some of those sanctions be triggers? I don't know if that's the word you would use in, in your line of work, but in terms of if a child is used to being isolated at home in a quite an aggressive way, if you then decide to use isolation 
in a, in a primary school and by that I mean it, it could mean a desk outside the head's office on your own or a specific area they have in schools now where you just have partitioned desks and, and someone in that room to oversee that is 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 that in any in any situation a good thing to do or is it in certain situations can be a triggering thing to do yeah, again, I think it's it's important to look at the child's reaction. If, if it causes an extreme reaction in the child, it, it's important to step back and think, okay, so this may not work for this particular child. So it's important also to communicate with parents and, and invite parents in and, and talk to them and ask them, well, how it, how, what's happening at home? Uh, talk to other teachers, talk to other people who, who have experience of working with the child. You Have you had quite a lot of experience in terms of those parental conversations. I mean, in my mind, even the thought of broaching the subject with a parent about a child's behaviour is is nerve-wracking. But then, then bringing in this element, well, you did say not to bring in the element of mental health, but also to say, okay, there's there's a well-being problem. But the the conversation where you begin, okay, what's going on at home? How do you angle that so it doesn't become this is your fault? I think that's a really tricky one because um, I have quite a lot of experience of, of interviewing parents about their experiences. So either parents who, who come from, uh, you know, primary school, uh, kids at primary school uh, age group, uh, secondary school. Um, I have talked to mothers who have mental health issues themselves and who have younger children. I'm also currently involved in a study on, on members from ethnic minority communities. And what I consistently get from parents is that they appreciate it when somebody talks to them, but also when somebody listens. Okay. Because the problem, of course, in, in schools is that teachers are very busy. And you have a lot of kids to look after, and, and you have a full timetable. And sometimes it, it, it is hard to, to make time for parents to talk. So mm. parents generally appreciate it. And of course, parents generally want the best for their child, and so do teachers. Mm. So generally, you would hope it's a meeting of the mind. It's never a good thing to say to a parent, what have you done? You're doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. So it is more the sort of positive approach, like it's, you know, it's lovely working with your child, but so-and-so is doing really well here and maybe struggling a bit here. Can we talk about blah, blah, blah? So it's about a positive approach, mm. sort of and a can-do approach. This is the behavior we're getting at school. I was interested to whether you're getting this behavior at home. And I guess that might be a way in to see, you know, if there's a consistent behavior. Because, I mean, I know from talking to some parents as well from in the course of my work that sometimes they're so relieved to find out the problem's not just, not just at home. Yeah. There's this vision that at school the child's perfect and I'm failing as a parent because at home the child is... Yeah. Is, is, is very disruptive and then they find out the child is disruptive at school and it's almost a relief for them. That's what yep. some of the parents have told me. Absolutely. Some parents, really, it means a lot to them to, to realise that they are not bad parents mm. but there is something else going on and the child you know, needs help. Then there is also the issue of, again, and looking at the whole package. I knew this family who uh, had a five-year-old mm. and because of behavioural issues, he um, basically was excluded from various schools at age five. Mm. So he'd been going through di to different schools and every time he was expelled and he was no longer allowed back. So mum went, uh, mum was suffering from mental health issues herself and uh, her parents died, she had trauma and depression. So they went through family counselling and family therapy and it turned out that her trauma and her, her behaviour towards the child meant that he didn't quite know where he stood, what his role was, what to do with himself, and that came out in, in behavioural issues. So the parent was literally taught how to play with the child. 
So whenever she played with a child, she would tell him what to do or she would tell him off or she would say, no, that's not how you put a Lego figure together and that's not how you do it. And the psychologist actually basically gave her an ear thing so that they observed her playing with the child and they said, okay, can you praise him now? Can you stroke his back? Can you say he did a good job? And it made all the difference. So Is that just a lack of modelling because her parents weren't around? Yeah, and, and because of her own trauma, she felt, okay, when I play with my child, I, I do it like this. I'll tell him what to do and I tell him off when he is, is doing something wrong. But what this little child needed was somebody to say, good job, you've done, wow, you've actually put together a Lego thingy and it looks wonderful. Oh, how sad, yeah. So, it, and his behaviour changed. And, yeah. and so the whole family received family therapy and support and then it changed the family. So that was good. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, a, it's a good result. Um, yeah. And where do you see uh, testing coming in to this mental health uh, debate in primary because in secondary it's you know there's a huge amount of debate about the stress put on teenagers at GCSE and now we're seeing SATs is attracting you know similar attention and the reason quite a lot of people are, are turning away from the baseline well the proposed baseline at EYFS is is not just because they think it's an invalid test but but also because they believe that you are creating anxiety for for a four to five year old in in that test. Yeah, I mean, ongoing testing, and especially if, if children are very aware of being in a test scenario, can cause quite a lot of stress. I was um, in a school once, and I asked children, I gave them a circle, and I asked them to use that circle to draw, uh, a, you know, talk about what they were doing in the day. Mm. It's just a circle, and they were seated, and it was just a fun activity. And the first thing they asked is, um, are we going to get a mark? Are we going to be assessed? And I was like, no, 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 it's a fun activity. This is not an assessment. And those were, I think they were seven, eight-year-olds. Mm. So it was really interesting to see how they were in their mind already thinking about, I need to do a good job because this may be an assessment. So I think it also depends on how you put assessments across. I know some schools are very good at turning it into a game. Mm. And, and of course, the most important thing is for a child to know that the work they put into it is amazing and it's not the, uh, the end product. So it's never good to say to a child, um, you know, you're not very good because you didn't get 10 out of 10. I once talked to a teacher who had an approach where she asked children to study or learn spellings, 10 words every week. And each child who got 10 out of 10, she put their names on the door. So when parents picked up the children, there was a list on the door of all the children who got 10 out of 10. So I had a chat with her and I said, well, what about the child who got 9 out of 10? Or the child who got 8 out of 10 or 5 out of 10, but who actually worked really hard? And she hadn't thought of that. Mm. And actually she changed it after. So I think that's the thing. We need to be aware of, I think we're doing too much testing and I think it is causing stress, but it's also about how we approach it. So testing itself as a, as a, as a, as a practice isn't necessarily bad, but how we frame that test and how perhaps regularly we test might cause issues. Yeah, and especially if you are put in those different sets where certain sets are better than others, and kids always know, mm. you know, you've got the giraffes or the elephants and the elephants <laughs> you know and, and sometimes that's hard too for children so I think you have to be very mindful of, of, of how you deal with those issues because it could have huge impact on self-esteem and again it could impact on the child's performance later on in life as well. Mm. And I guess that's my final question in the sense that if, a, if, if there has been suspicion or, or early signs in year five and six should those should that be part of the transition to year seven should 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 there be a document that goes up and says, by the way, we've noticed this, can you keep an eye on it? And I think some informal practice of that goes on in schools that are quite well connected, but there's certainly no official yeah. journey. And likewise, there's no official 
administrative journey from a primary to a special school, a primary to a PRU, a secondary to a PRU, a secondary to a special school, even when there's an ECHP, it yeah. seems that there's a real disconnect there. I think this needs to be done in, in discussion and collaboration with parents and maybe even the child because, mm. of course, in some situations it may not be a good idea to, to sort of pass on issues that might have happened at primary school because the child may need a clean start. Yeah. In other situations it may be incredibly good for a child to get the extra support or for people at least to be aware of the fact that there may have been some issues around well-being uh, or whatever is going on at home and this may have implications for how the child will do at secondary school. So I think it is very important also to include the parents here and, and uh, yeah, take it from there. Yeah. And an extra final question actually just while it's on, it, it just came to me is that the act of exclusion from a primary school, and I had a colleague of yours, Simon Edwards, on the podcast a few weeks ago who, who, who said that actually some children just don't fit a mainstream, mm. a mainstream school and they do need something else. And we discussed whether a, there's a different methodology there than exclusion as a label. Can exclusion, especially at a young age, be a traumatic event? It can be very traumatic. Um, I'm working with a family at the moment where there is a suggestion that the child is going to be excluded. And, and it's really sad because that child is being put in a position where they're made to feel bad. Now, of course, there are issues around behaviour that have you know, resulted in the child potentially being excluded. But sometimes you have to, again, as I said, step back and look at what is, uh, what is causing this behaviour and, and, and not by default sort of punishing the child and threatening exclusion and, and actually have trying to have a chat and I know teachers will say well we've done this we've gone this route we've talked to the child and the parents they're not listening and every time behavior is out of control and we just simply can't cope with it I still think indeed exclusion can has a huge impact and and you know to the point that if you're excluded you're labeled you can end up in the criminal justice system and it's unfair and that's something we want to prevent so we need to make sure that we do all we can to support children in, in those early stages, even if it means uh, trying to keep a child on board who is potentially going to be excluded, but looking at what is causing this. And in this case, I must admit, I think there is an element of racism as well, where, where the child is treated a certain way, maybe because of her ethnicity, uh, because of, of her background. And as such, again, it's also important to step back and look at your own norms and values and, and perhaps do diversity inclusion training in school. I think some schools are very good at this, whereas other schools could do more mm. to, to get the broader picture of, of what do families from different communities need and how can we support every family in the same way. Wendy, thank you very much. Thank you.